Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It is going to be another great day. It's uh, really cooled off here in the Twin Cities, which is a welcome response to some hot, steamy, humid weather. So it's feeling like a spectacularly, brilliantly wonderful summer day. It's about 74 degrees, and that, for a fair-skinned guy like me, is pretty nice because I I don't do well in that hot sun. My little fair skin. Ah, there you go. All right, we're going to have Alex McFarland join me in just a minute. And then uh, in the second part of this hour, Kim Katola is going to be joining me. I always look forward to talking to both of these guests. And then in hour two, Ace Collins is going to be uh, talking about uh, what he does so well. He's written 100, and 100 books. And <laughs> 100 books. Come on, Rebecca, help me with that. I, have I even read 100 books in my life? That's an excellent question. Yeah, <laughs> no. oh, I love Ace. <laughs> I I know I love Ace too. He's so good, and I can't wait to hear about songs about heaven. That's going to be, gonna be really great. Fun. That's going to be great. But uh, Alex McFarland is a regular guest on the show, and he is a author and speaker and blogger, and he's written twenty books himself. So he's uh, knows that business well, and he is uh, in in the midst of a culture obsessed with relativism. Alex is a nice, fresh voice of truth. Uh, Alex, welcome. Well, thank you. You are so gracious, Bill. It's always a joy to be on with you, and you uh, you give me nicer introductions than I deserve. Well, I don't think so. I think you get every everything I say you deserve. Well, God is good, and it's exciting good. to know the Lord. And uh, so uh, how's the broadcast world of uh, Minneapolis it's, and St. Paul? It's absolutely wonderful. It's um, it. I find it to be an enormous thrill because I'm a student, Alex, and I come in and I'm excited to talk to you because I'm going to learn something. And I oh. feel like I'm kind of with the listeners on this. It's like I, I am here to learn. Uh, how big is your footprint? Um, where all is, is the Bill Arnold Show heard? Well, it's in the whole upper Midwest and uh, Hartford, Connecticut, and then across the U.S. of A. Uh, because of oh. the uh, we, we stream live. Yeah, uh, it's great. Well, it's a great honor to be on. And, you know, folks, let me just say this without getting too much into the technical side of things. Um, when you're a guest on a radio show, there's a couple of ways to do it. One is through a digital, you know, microphone processor thing. And the other is on a cell phone, which isn't great. And a lot of radio networks, I mean, if you're, let's say you're traveling, all you have is a cell phone. They don't really want you on because, and that's understandable because cell phone reception can be very poor. The Bill Arnold Show and the Faith Radio Network has been so gracious to me. I love to be in a studio where it's good sound quality, and I try to do that, but a lot of times I'm on the road traveling. And, Bill, you guys and your crew have been so gracious to me, and I know some days I've been on the cell phone, and probably the fidelity was probably pretty horrible. And you guys have been so patient and so gracious, so thanks. You're so welcome. We always uh, want you on the show when we can get you, and sometimes you're in the Atlanta airport or you're... Uh, okay, in a car right. heading to a speaking engagement, but that doesn't mean we don't want to talk. Well, thanks. And, hey, um, today is um, July 10, 2020. 
Um, now, giving a date, I hope I don't like date the show. Um, sometimes you, they don't like you to use dates, but um, two things are very significant about Christian history today. If I could throw a couple Please. of little. Okay, for one thing, um, July 10, 1925, you know, 95 years ago, was the start of the Scopes trial. And this was pretty significant because John T. Scopes um, was a phys ed teacher that was used by the ACLU purposely to break a Tennessee law against the teaching of evolution. And it was very famous um, in Dayton County, Tennessee, and I actually went to the courtroom. I sat in the courtroom which has not changed much at all. Um, Dayton, Tennessee, Shelby County. Um, I was writing a book on atheism, Bill, and just oddly enough, I happened to be speaking at Bryan College, and I waiting for my ride to the airport. Literally, I sat in the Scopes courtroom finishing a book about atheism, and it was kind of just very surreal. But here's the thing. One million people during the summer of 25, convened on the, the city of Dayton, Tennessee, to listen to William Jennings Bryan and Clarence Darrow hash it out about creation versus evolution. And Clarence Darrow was a friend of H.L. Mencken of the Baltimore Sun. Mencken was an atheist and a pretty, um, you know, vehement opponent of Christianity. It's funny, G.K. Chesterton from England, who was very influential in the life of C.S. Lewis, Mencken was such an obnoxious critic of Christianity. G.K. Chesterton came to America, challenged him to a debate, and famously in one of these debates, um, Chesterton challenging the evolutionist like Mencken said, you've, you've tried to tell me how something would turn into something else. You still haven't told me how something could come from nothing. But the Scopes trial raged, and William Jennings Bryan, who was a Christian, had not tried a case in 10 years. And on the stand, Clarence Darrow got him pretty tangled up. He kind of realized that he had not represented Christianity and the Bible adequately. A week after the trial, he died of a heart attack. Some say kind of a broken heart because he felt like he didn't do a good job. But here's the thing, Bill. After the Scopes trial, which kind of was a PR fiasco for Christians, a lot of quarters of Christianity said, well, we're going to retreat from the public square. We won't go to public schools. We won't engage with the culture. And by the 80s and 90s, some voices like Francis Schaeffer, uh, D. James Kennedy, whose show I'll be on this weekend, uh, Jerry Falwell, James Dobson, Billy Graham, a lot of people realized that the, the retreat of the Christian church from the public arena in the aftermath of Scopes was negative. And we've really kind of been playing catch-up ever since. I wonder, and I know God is sovereign— Bill, I wonder, had the church in the 20s, after Scopes, said, look, we're going to stay in the public square. We're just going to do it a little more articulately and a little more intelligently. We're going to stay in academia, and we're going to stay in politics. We're just going to do it more fruitfully and more effectively. Would it be a different America if we'd spent the last 80, 90 years intentionally trying to build bridges to the public square instead of having retreated from it. That's a fantastic observation and question, Alex, and what do you think? 
Well, I really do think it would have been a vastly different world. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it would have been a vastly different world. I'll give you a case in point. Um, Deshaun Jackson of uh, the Philadelphia Eagles made some anti-Semitic remarks in recent weeks. The rapper Ice Cube tweeted some memes that, that were pretty um, racist against Jews. And, and let me just say this, Bill, I've spoken in the last 10 years, three different universities where I spoke, students and one or two faculty denied the Holocaust. And I, I did a, a webcast where I said, look, why is it right now we're in a season of world history where there, everybody is diligently speaking out against racism, and rightly so. But it seems like one form of racism that's allowed to go by unchecked is anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. racism against the Jews. And, I mean, I've spoken at universities where people, faculty, occasionally, but students frequently will deny the Holocaust. Can you imagine the firestorm if somebody at a university denied that slavery had existed in colonial America? You know, what are you complaining about? Slavery never happened. Right. I mean, that, that would be reckless and swiftly condemned. But a lot of anti-Semitism is not swiftly condemned. Uh, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about that last week, um, how many intellectuals are anti-Semitic, definitely anti-State of Israel. Uh, but my point being, in academia, in politics, and just in, in media and culture, and certainly in the arts, um, if Christians had uh, a little more consistently and professionally asserted themselves over the last 80 years, I think it would be a vastly different America. I agree, Alex, and I, I think there's been a, a strong encouragement over the last 20 or 25 years that I can remember of Christians uh, re-entering media and the arts. How well they're doing, I don't know, but it certainly has been time to get back into those environments, into education, into media, into uh, politics, where you can um, be making a difference. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I got a question off of uh, Facebook this morning where somebody said, um, I want my pastor to speak about, uh, named a lot of the issues, but and I've encouraged, but he just won't do it. Why not? Um, I was on a call with George Barna, and many people have heard the name of the Barna Research Group. George Barna is very respected. I would say an incredibly astute sociologist and trend watcher. Uh, Barna says 74% of parishioners want their clergy to speak about moral, social, and yes, political issues mm. from a biblical perspective, but less than 12% of pastors do. I think a lot of times that's probably out of fear. You know, oh my goodness, if I lay the cards on the table, um, what would people say? Hey, look, we're to the point, I think the preservation of our liberties and our Constitution depend on people being informed sufficiently inspired to vote and make a difference. So pastors, um, be bold and and give your people what thus saith the Lord, even about political and moral issues. All right, Alex, let me take a little break. Are you prepared to uh, share some more about Christopher Columbus when we come back? Oh, I love Columbus. Yes, let's do. talk about him. I know you do. So, Because if you weren't, I had to prepare you to talk about something else <laughs> and give you all of 90 seconds to do it. We'll talk about anything you want to. Good Bill. deal. Dr. Alex McFarlane is my guest. You can go to alexmcfarlane.com to learn more about Alex and see his books and his blogs and his uh, thinking. We'll be right back. 
Show, Reverend Alex McFarland at Reverend Alex McFarland.com is a place you can go uh, connect with Alex. You're doing that still three days a week, Alex? On Facebook, uh, yeah. Monday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the Facebook page is Rev Alex McFarland, and then just my regular webpage, Alex McFarland.com. And um, at the end of this month, I speak my uh, speaking tour, which has kind of been on hiatus since quarantine you know mm -hmm. but uh i'm going to be at the cove the billy graham training center at the cove which is in western north carolina uh july 27 through 30 doing daniel and revelation awesome. and there's still time to register i'm told we have like a really great crowd that will be there not surprised well you know in light of all this you know covid i didn't know if anybody would come or not but I talked to the Cove earlier this week. They said it was just about sold out, but there was a little bit of uh, space left. But their website, whether it's me or anybody, it's unbelievably wonderful, a Bible conference center. It's called thecove.org. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you did uh, some a lot of studying on Christopher Columbus and did some teaching, and I'd love to hear more about this young explorer. Yeah, you know, at, by 41 had, you know, sailed to much of the world. Well, one of the reasons I started really studying about Columbus uh, several years ago was because he was so often denigrated in college discussions. And, I mean, it just, you know, he was just painted almost like as a demon. And, of course, in the last few weeks during some of the riots and the anarchy over Black Lives Matter, Columbus um, statues have been pulled down. And that's really unfortunate. Um, and let me just say, you know, Bill, for the record, hey, look, enslavement of people is wrong. But you've got to understand, for the Middle Ages, traveling, um, you know, conquering nations, bartering, buying land, and, you know, trading, trading uh, you know, land and passage to continents for indentured servitude. I mean, that's that's how things worked in that period. I'm not saying is right. I'm just saying, given the, the milieu in which Columbus lived and his predecessor, Leif Erikson, who really got to the North American continent first, Columbus overall is not a, a bad person. I will say this, um, he was a Christian. He was a believer in Christ. Um, the money that he made as as a business person, as an explorer, and he did make money, but he used it. Uh, a lot of the gold that he that he acquired, he used for missions. But, you know, Bill. You know, it's what's pretty amazing. It's estimated that in the uh, roughly 400 years before the 15th to 19th centuries, Spain s sent out nearly 16,000 missionaries to the Americas. Uh, it, it was amazing. Wow. But Col Columbus himself wrote in his diary that he was called by God to bear the light of Christ to previously unknown heathen coastlands. Now, people today, when I've shared some of Columbus's quotes, they're like, heathen? You know, how dare you call the indigenous people of North America heathen? Uh, well, that wasn't like a, a slur or a 
a pejorative term. It was a, really a technical term. Heathen is a technical term that means unevangelized people. Now, they had a moral code because it's written on the heart of all people, but they didn't have what we call special revelation. They had the witness of creation and conscience, but they did not have the specific knowledge of the triune biblical God and how to know Christ the Savior. So when you read all these people of old that talk about evangelizing the heathen, they weren't trying to be sarcastic and you know, disrespectful. It meant people who, as far as we know, did not yet have the special revelation of Scripture and Savior. And so Columbus, as a Christian, and, and we will see Columbus in heaven, you know, he, he said that he was called to bear the light of Christ to previously unknown heathen coastlands. And they say, I mean, there's a lot we can say. I, I don't want to just run on endlessly, mm -hmm. Bill, but um, Columbus is, is a Christian predecessor worth knowing about. All right, Alex. Uh, my producer, Rebecca, has got a question I write these questions and then I ask her to read them. So, <laughs> okay, here we go. Hi, Rebecca. Uh, hi, Alex. I, I love learning about Columbus with you. And I think I've heard a critique to what you just said that Columbus and other explorers like him um, are guilty of using Christianity as kind of this ruse or an excuse to plunder other nations, to um, create colonies and to oppress vulnerable people. And so I wondered if you'd respond a bit to that and, and to that critique? Is it valid? Well, again, I, I think about this. Um, I, I'm reading several history books right now because I'm working on a book that will come out in September. And uh, there are a number of historians that aren't necessarily Christians, but um, have, have said, look, political correctness makes um, really unfairly critical judgments about people of the last you know, 2,000 years. Western Civ is pretty unpopular right now. And they'll say, well, yeah, you know, you just got on a boat so you could colonize other continents. So, so let, me, let me throw in a, something here about the politically correct, scathing rebukes of the past 2,000 years of Western Civ, Columbus included. Um, the the colonization, you know, colonialism of, of India uh, by England, the, the colonial um, designs that Spain had on North America. I, I'll put it this way, what Dinesh D'Souza said about India. Somebody asked Dinesh, you know, what did England ever do for India? Uh, he said, well, other than a common language, roads, schools, hospitals, uh, building programs, food production, agriculture, technology, nothing. <laughs> um, in other words, um, from our 21st century political correct eyes, uh, c colonialism looks really bad. Oh, my goodness, you just did this. Now, listen carefully, folks. There's a fallacy called reductionism. Now, a fallacy is, is an incorrect way of thinking. And the word reductionism is from this root reduce. Now, to, in other words, to minimalize and just to caricature your position, like Bill Arnold is on the radio because he's nothing but a narcissist who likes the sound of his own voice. Well, no, that doesn't 
take into consideration the whole picture. So nothing buttery is, is reductionism. So you say, okay, Columbus was nothing but a soldier of fortune who just sailed the world to plunder natives and take their gold. Well, there might have been some plundering, probably was. There were also legitimate deals. But understand this, folks. And look, secular historians like A.N. Wilson would say this, Paul Johnson, uh, Christian historians, Pulitzer-nominated Rodney Stark. Here's the thing. Everywhere Christianity ever went, there was a resultant bettering of the human condition. Now, here's the thing. The, um, the, the European explorers, but go on back to, like, the two first Christian nations in the world were Syria and Ethiopia. And yes, where the specific gospel went of Jesus also went the moral code of the Old Testament. And naked savages were told to put on clothes. And polygamy was squelched. And instead of impregnating 13 women and just creating hordes of, you know, savages, there was the Christian, the Judeo-Christian moral code of family and civic structure. And so I would say this, look, this world in any era of history is not necessarily the best world because there's sin and there's fallenness. But this is the best way to the best world. What's the best world? Righteousness and Habakkuk saying that the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But we're on our best way to the best world by spreading the gospel. So I don't think it's fair at all to use a reductionistic fallacy and just be dismissive and say Columbus was nothing but out to plunder the world. No, he, he said that he, he was an evangelist for Christ. Do you know, even on his boat, it's been documented, whenever they would mark the passing of the hour, they, they would say, blessed be the hour of the Savior's birth. Then the next hour, they would say, blessed be the Virgin Mary that bore him. Then the next hour, they would say, blessed be John who baptized him. And they, it really was, look, anytime you have sinners, there's going to be some sin, but... Uh, it really was a basically evangelistic Great Commission endeavor. Um, and so, you know, uh, I just don't think it's accurate to discern the true benefit of Columbus or any of the Christian war. I mean, even the Crusades that were designed to recover the Holy Land from Muslim uh, usurpers. Look, I'm not saying it was all right. I'm not saying it was all um, ideal, but it wasn't the uh, the universally negative thing that political correctness tries to condemn. Mm-hmm. Alex, thank you so much. I just uh, love having you on the show and appreciate your friendship. And thank Good you on. once again. Have a great weekend. God bless you guys. Pray for America. Well, indeed. Dr. Alex McFarland's been my guest. You can go to Alex McFarland. We'll take a short break. When we come back, Kim Katola will be joining me with all the pro-life news updates. Be right back.
Welcome back to the show. Always glad to talk to Kim Katola. We always get the latest information and updates on pro-life news. She does way more than just that, but that is one of her specialties. Kim, welcome. Hey, Bill. Good to talk to you again. Thank you so much. There's a lot of things going on in the news, and especially at the Supreme Court level. I don't want to quite go there yet. I would like to have you talk about uh, what's going on at Planned Parenthood. They have recently come across some new video footage. Would you tell the listeners about that? Well, what has happened is that um, the Center for Medical Progress, Bill, you and I have discussed this a number of times, uh, went undercover to talk with Planned Parenthood executives about what happens to the remains when a fetus is aborted. And they admitted, um, and some of the footage was already leaked or made public, they admitted that they are selling that tissue to various biomedical research firms, which is illegal. There's a federal statute that says you may not sell human tissue of any kind, but they are doing it all the same. And they were caught on video doing that. Well, they sued David Daleiden from Center for Medical Progress for uh, breach of privacy and other things. And they've prevailed in the courts, even to the point of a gag order from uh, the public knowing what was on those videotapes. Well, now they have been released. And Bill, it's devastating to mm. Planned Parenthood because a number of executives are caught on tape talking about exactly how the business works. And I found it very interesting, Bill, and maybe part of the reason why so few of us have heard very much about this Um is that Judicial Watch had sued for uh, under the Freedom of Information Act for those records. So they're now available out there. And one of the things that came to light is that the Food and Drug Administration, that is our federal government through that agency, between 2012 and 2018 entered into eight contracts worth $96,000 for fresh and never frozen tissue from first and second trimester aborted fetuses. Why? For use in creating humanized mice for ongoing research. Hmm. So, I mean, and we know that fetal tissue is also used in vaccines and in other um, biomedical experimentation looking for cures for Parkinson's disease and other um, degenerative illnesses. And so uh, it could be that because the government is in the business of buying this tissue, that that's why the news has been suppressed. That's why uh, nobody in the government is seems to be interested in the wrongdoing on the part of Planned Parenthood. But for me, as a person who's been through an abortion bill, reading through the story just broke my heart again. Now, I am I consider myself a person who has recovered from the grief and guilt of abortion through my faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise his name. And this allows me to talk publicly about my experience. And yet, I'm reading this story, and I come to the line that says, and Live Action News has covered this, uh, and I come to the line that says that uh, one of the procurement houses paid $750 for an intact liver. That detail was so heartbreaking to me, Bill, because for all I know, my baby was treated as medical waste, which they, that's the line, you know, that all of the tissue is treated as medical waste. And so maybe just disposed of. But then again, we don't know. 
some women are given the chance to sign permission for the abortionist and abortion provider to um, harvest the tissue for donation. Uh, Many have no idea what has happened to the remains of the children that we lost in abortion. And the idea that someone was selling part by part just is so heartbreaking to me as someone, you know, who will never know the answer to that question. Uh, And it ought to be heartbreaking to everybody that this is happening, you know, um, every day, even during lockdowns, even during quarantines, the abortion businesses continue to pace. Kim, when I read this line, I had this rage response in my spirit that it said that these video, uh, the new footage that's come out has a Planned Parenthood partner admitting that body parts were harvested from aborted babies who still had beating hearts. Yes, which that, is, of course, illegal. That's that's a, a baby who's been born, right? Right. And under oath, these folks will say things like, well, it was going to stop within seconds. You know, they justify it, Bill, mm-hmm. just the way Gosnell did and, uh, when he was called to account for his house of horrors. Right. Well, you know, I mean, I was snipping their uh, spinal cords as a an act of mercy because they were going to die soon enough. I'd already injected their hearts with poisons to bring about fetal demise. In other words, they would would already, you know, they were in death throes is what you're seeing if there's a beating heart. And I understand, you know, that medical professionals are in a different mindset than you and I in terms of what's happening with the bodies that they're handling. But this is beyond the pale. It's very much beyond the pale. I don't know how they sleep at night. I don't know what kind of lies they tell themselves about what it is that they're seeing as they're handling a human heart, mm-hmm. hoping, to, hoping to keep it intact so that they can deliver it fresh, never frozen to whomever they're uh, passing it along to at whatever profit. Kim, it's, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just, it's just devastating. Yeah. How can we, I mean, of course, they do everything they can to keep this information from coming to light. Um, everything they can. Their excuse was, if the American public knew this, there would be an outcry and a backlash and violence against abortion providers. Uh, well, why do you think that might be? Not that I'm ever advocating violence. Please hear me carefully. I never would advocate violence. That's the whole point of being pro-life. But if you think that if your practice were known that you'd be subject to backlash, maybe it's time to stop that practice rather than saying, let's keep it all in the dark. Mm-hmm. And then what about Planned Parenthood? Are they allowing babies who would be considered viable in a hospital just to lay there and die because there's no medical equipment or or staff to care for this baby? And the goal is for the baby to die, and they're just letting that happen in these in these clinics. Well, and again, I urge you to go to the live action website. They've got a lot of this footage and the um, original, so you can listen to it and decide for yourself what you think is being discussed here. But yes, they uh, they have the videos posted of Dr. Nucatella. She was one that, you know, that was one of, I think, the first video that they released. Was it in 2015, I think? Anyway, um she was one of their highly placed executive directors and medical directors. She's an MD. And um, she was munching salad and saying, oh, yes, I can crush the skull so that you can get the other body parts, mm. you know, intact. She said calvarium, right? Again, that's 
sort of uh, detachment of a medical professional. But yeah, she's on she's on video, and of course, since they knew what they were doing, they were trying to pin her down and say, well, what would cause you to not go through to harvest those parts? What would what would signal to you that a baby had been born viable? And she just danced around the question, Bill. And the answer is whatever serves our interest, not the interest of the baby. I mean, that's the bottom line. You know, and she's the person who's determining for the abortion business as a national entity what those standards of procedure are. They they asked her, has she ever had a patient deliver in the operating room a non-viable fetus? Right. So they're trying to come at the question from the opposite side. She said, well, I'm sure I have non-viable, right, because that's the point of an abortion. So what does that mean? So first she defined it as a fetus not capable of survival. So they said, well, well, how do you determine that? She said, well, it depends on where you work. And then so they pressed a little more, and she said it partially depends on the baby's gestational age, weight, and health. However, she also included the availability of interventions in her criteria, Well, viability is the line that the Supreme Court said, you know, after which you may not kill a a fetus, right? When the baby can live apart from his or her mother, you may not kill him or her. And right now we have children who were born at 22 weeks gestation, and in some of their facilities, they are doing abortions after that time. So she didn't think that she was being questioned legally, Bill. Uh, but her answers highlight the fact that uh, there are serious questions about whether they are allowing babies who would be considered viable in a hospital to die because they don't purposely, they don't have available interventions in place, such as medical equipment or staff to care for the baby and arrange for his or her transportation to a hospital. And if there's one person listening right now, Bill, who's saying to themselves, fetus, not yet a life, we don't know when life begins, all of these talking points, right, for the abortion industry. They're the ones who came up with those points. There's no confusion on this, by the way. If anyone is still thinking that, though, or troubled by it or doubts it, look at the FDA pers- purchasing these fetal remains for experiments on transhumanized mice. Mm. Okay, so if you want to turn a mouse into a human or a transhuman mouse, what do you need? You need human tissue. And where else can you get it other than a human being? And what are these then, children? They're human beings. Right. And they deserve so much better protection. They don't deserve so much more of an outcry and um, defense than they're receiving at this time in our country and in our world. Kim, it's just so tragic and it's so sad and hard to hear and even in Minneapolis this last week I don't know if you saw in the paper today but there was a 27 year old woman who was slain near the south side street corner where George Floyd was killed mm, and she I was didn't see it. she was pregnant at the time mm. and they got her to the hospital and the doctors delivered the baby and then she died Oh. Isn't it interesting the they're using the expression they delivered the baby. Right. And that's no no right. it's no surprise to any Christian, but it is that a newspaper will describe it that way. Well, and why? Because in such a tragic circumstance, such a horrible circumstance, which no one would ever wish on anyone, mm-hmm. and everyone who was present, right, would act. 
Right. If we saw it yes. unfolding before our eyes, we would act. Why? Because the instinct to preserve life is so strong. And having lost the mother, every single one of us who had a, a heart and a conscience would say, well, thank God we at least saved the baby. I know. Wow. Yeah. What right. a powerful illustration of it. Well, yeah, I agree. So let's uh, let's talk about the uh, Supreme Court decision that was five to four that was uh, against pro-life. But I want to first take a break and we come back. We can pick up our discussion right there. Kim Cattola is my guest. We'll be back in 90 seconds. So glad to be talking to Kim Cotola. Kim is a uh, pro-life advocate and has been a radio person for know, thirty years, thirty-five. How many years, Kim? Long time. Long time. I mean, you're just you are you are the consummate you are the consummate pro in every my way. Gig. My first gig lasted longer than I lived at home, Bill. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. Outstanding. And, you know, and I and I'm surprised, Bill, because I don't really have a platform, and certainly not one that I'm building at this time, for expressing my pro-life advocacy. Although, um, Cradle My Heart, the book that I wrote in 2012, still bounces in and out of the top 100 on Amazon. I don't that's, know how that happens. That's fantastic. Happened. <laughs> that's fantastic. So, but it's still available. Still available on Amazon. And and really, the effort there, Bill, was just to help those who like me had a spiritual crisis after abortion, and answer those questions that only God's heart can provide our peace and comfort and reconciliation for. And so, you know, we that was a labor of love. We um, donate pro- the uh, profits or proceeds to the pregnancy help movement. I didn't write it for any other purpose than to share the good news of what the gospel can do for us as we struggle in the aftermath of abortion. But it's still out there and it's still available. So I didn't know that, Kim. Thank you for sharing that with me and the audience, that all the mm-hmm. proceeds are going to, to help others. All right, let's go back to uh, the Supreme Court's decision striking down the Louisiana abortion law. It was a 5-4 to four decision. It came awfully close, but um, basically allowing abortion providers in the state to operate without hospital admitting privileges. You know, and Justice Roberts, <laughs> I, I mean, if you have an answer as to what the mind of Justice Roberts is, Bill, I think I the world is waiting to hear from you, <laughs> because I really don't either. But what he stated was that um, although he voted differently in a very similar case in Texas in 2016, uh, because, you know, that precedent exists, he had to vote against his fo- his former vote. Okay. <laughs> How can you do that, Kim? How can you even I, do that? It, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, I, I just don't and, get and what, it. And the other thing that's very interesting to me, so what's at issue here is whether or not an abortion provider in surgical abortions has to have admitting privileges to a hospital. Um, Bill, if I go to get a root canal, I can guarantee you that oral surgeon is going to have to have some kind of um, admitting privileges. Yes. Anybody who's doing ambulatory surgeries has to have admitting privileges because even the best professional surgeons can encounter problems and definitely ones that they're not, you know, equipped to handle in an ambulatory facility. And the abortion industry has tried to have it both ways and the Supreme Court said they could. 
with this ruling. They've tried to say, uh, we're health care. It's basic health care. Abortion is health care. But when they're held to a standard of, well, then you need to operate like an ambulatory surgical center, they've said, no, 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 we need to have access. Nobody needs admitting privileges. Nobody ever gets hurt in an abortion. You're just trying to keep women from having abortions. In this case in Louisiana, Bill, the decision was was brought by um, not a woman who'd had her access limited because her doctor didn't have admitting privileges, but by the abortion business that was trying to say, gee, this law is in my way. (laughs) And the Supreme Court said, well, okay, have at. We're not going to regulate you. Mm. In my opinion, this is what this ruling amounts to. And if you think that women don't suffer and emergencies don't arise during surgical abortions, you are simply ill-informed. Mm-hmm. This is what the whole Gosnell case was about, and that's why Texas passed that law in 2016. You know, and on a P- because uh, in 2015 the Gosnell case had come to light, and his house of horrors, and he killed a woman. He killed an immigrant woman, Kayamana Mungar. He had he he had some unqualified person administer uh, anesthesia improperly. And when she had a fatal reaction, they called the paramedics and they couldn't get a gurney in because the place wasn't uh, up to snuff. And Gosnell himself had no admitting privileges and she died as a result of his you know, shoddy practices. And so the legislators in Texas said, we don't want anybody to be able to operate in that manner here in our state. And so one of the ways that we're going to try to prevent that is we're going to have a high bar. We're going to say these doctors have to be able to go with you to the hospital if you have a perforated uterus or some other problem in the course of their procedure. Uh, But the Supreme Court ruled that, no, that's not the case. And for me, it's a very sad day for women because, you know, most women, Bill, as I did when I had an abortion, you assume that this is safe. It's legal. You assume that there's some oversight, that there's some, you know, protections in place for you, that this is a viable, not viable, I don't want to use that word, but but that it's a legitimate medical practice. So you put yourself in these people's hands. So many women have died as a result of it, that um, it's a very, very sad decision for women's health that the Supreme Court has ruled the way that they have. Kim, it seems like it's such a, not only a tragic and horrific procedure, but a highly dangerous one. Absolutely, Bill. You cannot. The most natural thing in the world is for a child to grow within his or her mother's womb. It is the most natural thing in the world. Anything that would interrupt that is, by definition, an unnatural intervention. And particularly, um, you know, as the baby gets older, beyond 10, 12 weeks, very um, very a wide array of difficulties present themselves in doing that safely. And, um, you know, one of the other things that Gosnell did and that many of his ilk will do still is to play around with the gestational age. So if your state says you can only have an abortion up to 16 weeks, he'll read the ultrasound and say, oh, he or she will read it and say, oh, looks like you're 16 weeks, even though they can see that you're further along, Mm. placing your health at risk. And of course, you know, the baby's life is always going to be expended. Uh, but for women to believe that it's safe, and of course, the, you know, the abortion business talking point is that it's safer than childbirth. Wow, that's right? a big lie. Oh, well, that's a that's yes. a big lie. My lie meter just lie. went off. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's a big lie. And if you, you know, look at, um, do your research. That's all, you know, because the truth is out there. You do your research and ask yourself why they would want to promote something so unnatural as completely safe. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we just have a couple of minutes left. I know if you are a kid and you would like to get an aspirin at school, good luck. How about an abortion, especially in Florida? Oh, man. So the judicial bypass is working its way through Florida courts. And um, guess what? It's a pro-abortion group. Oh, big surprise there. (laughs) Website for teens to bypass parents to obtain an abortion. So, I mean, at least before, you used to have some kind of an advocate. Many times the abortion providers would funnel the the minors into their judicial bypass, um, you know, revolving door. Uh, but now all, it just takes a click of a mouse and you can get somebody to say, sure, we'll take you down to the judge. And, you know, Bill, here's the thing. Think about it. You're 14. You're 15 years old. You're pregnant. And you're probably panicked if you haven't told your parents, as, you know, many girls have not at that point. Sorry, maybe you're afraid to tell your parent. You know, girls will say things like my parents would kill me if they found out. Uh, you have a strict family. Maybe you even have a, a Christian family or a devout family of some faith. And so you don't want your parents to know. But this judicial bypass is set up on the premise, Bill, that every teen is in an abusive home and needs a judicial advocate who's going to be wiser and more um, fair than parents would be in deciding whether or not this minor should have an abortion. You think about that. Is that judge who says, okay, you're competent, you answered the questions correctly, is that judge going to be there to hold your daughter and to help her through the aftermath? Is that judge going to be there to speak with her about uh, what she can do to prevent this happening in the future? Is this judge going to be there to talk with her about how her choices have you know, lifelong impacts? I don't think that judge is going to be there for any of those things, nor can any system uh, provide those things. And that's a tragedy when there's real abuse, but the answer cannot be extracting parents from every situation for the sake of the few who truly have abusive parents for whom this is also uh, not a satisfactory intervention. Of course, the judge you know, may or may not ask if you're frightened of the person who, you know, who fathered this child. Right. Okay. Right. I don't. I don't think that they're asking questions about mm. were you raped. Is this I incest? know. I don't. Because I. I mean, I've heard from girls who went through this process. You know, I, her name was Julie, and she was 16 years old, and she said they took me. You know, the abortion provider took me to the courthouse, and there were a bunch of girls took us on a bus. And when it was my turn in front of the judge, he said, how old are you? I said, I'm 16. He said, do you think that you're old enough to make this decision for yourself? Yes, Your Honor, I do. He hit the gavel. Next person. Oh, my. And she said, I was couch surfing. I had failed school. I didn't have a job. I had no idea what my future was going to look like. I no more had the maturity to make such a decision than flying to the moon. And yet that was the only question asked of her. And again, what kind of aftercare, what kind of real support? Zero. So the judicial bypass is anything but humane. It's anything but compassionate. And it, who does it serve and who does it benefit? Mm-hmm. Abortion providers. Yeah. Well, Kim, I so appreciate your 
your gentle and loving and kind approach to telling the truth because it's so hard to hear. And I think this would be just wonderful if you could uh, pray us out of this conversation because it is so uh, difficult and challenging. Mm, I will. And Bill, I'd also recommend, you know, if you want to know more about most of these stories are sourced on PregnancyHelpNews.com. Okay. Uh, they're an ag- aggregator. They're kind of like a drudge report for stories on the pro-life issues, not only abortion, but others. Um, and they, you know, they post stories from many, many outlets. And it's a great place to learn more. And PregnancyHelpNews.com? Um, yes. Okay. Um Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for this opportunity to speak truth. Lord, you said that we are to have nothing to do with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead to expose them. And I thank you for Bill's willingness to talk about such difficult things today. Your word also tells us, Lord, that we're to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. You yourself, Jesus said, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And if the unborn The weakest members of society are not our neighbors. I don't know who is. Lord, help us to love them and to love them well. And help us, Lord, to uh, repent of our complacency and our silence in failing to do these things and to have a renewed vigor, Lord, to uh, see the unborn child as you do, because we know that life begins before you conceive each of us in our mother's wombs. Lord, we look to you, we trust you, we do not lose heart, because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kim, thank you so much, and have a wonderful weekend. Thanks for the opportunity, Bill. You bet. Kim Cattola has been my guest. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.